Hope y'all are doing well. We're uh, continuing in our sermon series on Matthew. It's called King Alone, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 27. If you don't have one, just look underneath you. There's, there's one there, and just open it up uh, and, and take that one with you. Feel free to keep it. We want you to, to take it. We're going to be in Matthew 27, and we'll start at verse 11 today. But let's, uh, let's pray first, and then we'll, we'll get started. Jesus, thank you for this time that we can gather together around your word. I thank you, God, for this privilege that we have to be able to gather freely, to look at your word together corporately without any fear of persecution or our lives being injured in any particular way. I pray that that freedom would not be something we take lightly. And more than that, God, as we pray, I pray that as we, as we look at your word, I pray that you would come now and, and superintend these moments, that your Holy Spirit would come and fill me and help me speak truth. And, and Lord, that I would be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not just filled with the Spirit as I preach, that all of us would be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that our ears would be open to hear what you need to say to us this morning through your word. We pray that you would use it mightily. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. We've been going through the book of Matthew for a while now. And as we started chapters 26, 27, 28, uh, the goal is in about nine weeks to look at the, that uh, couple chapters and, and build ourselves to Matthew 28.1. Matthew 28.1 is the resurrection. So on Easter, we'll start the resurrection. Um, and so what we've been doing as we've been going through Matthew 26 and 27 for about five weeks now, we've got about four weeks left, is week in, week out, we've just been looking at those last couple days of Jesus's life, looking at what are some of the things that he's gone through. Uh, and so just to give us kind of all a, a, a quick review we were last week, we started at chapter 27, verse 1. Uh, and just verses 1 and 2, you can see that the Roman trial had just ended. The Sanhedrin had done this kind of fake false trial to get Jesus accused of blasphemy. They say that in uh, chapter 26, verse 65, where they said he is blasphemy. And they, they said he deserves death in verse 66. And then after that, in order for the people that are Jewish to, to put anyone to death in this particular time, in this, in this period, they also had to have a Roman trial because it was the Romans who was in government. And the Romans were the ones who carried out capital punishment. And so after the Jewish trial of blasphemy, which deserves death, they weren't allowed to kill people. Uh, the Jews weren't. So they needed the government, the Romans, to do it. So they had to go have a second trial with the Romans. And if the Romans said, okay, this person deserves death, then they would carry it out. So you can see that in verse 1. Morning came, all the chief priests and elders, that's the Sanhedrin that wanted to put Jesus to death. They, they headed over to try to put Jesus to death, um, but they had to do this Roman trial. And it says they took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him, they handcuffed him, if you will, and led him away to the governor to, to deliver him over to Pilate, the governor. Pilate was the Roman uh, prefect, the governor of that particular area that had been appointed by Caesar to oversee this particular area. And if he heard the case and heard the trial and said, yes, this guy deserves the, de the death penalty, then they would be able to do it. And then as Matthew was writing after he did that, you can see at verse 3, Matthew takes a kind of a little excerpt and he talks to us about Judas. And so <clears throat> last week we talked about Judas. Uh, and as we finished it, verse 11, Matthew picks up, if you will, right at the end of verse 2, Matthew 11, 
11, verse 11 is kind of the same story. They bring him to the governor, and then verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor. So that's where we're picking up, is where Jesus is in front of Pilate, uh, and he's about, they're trying to make their case to uh, put Jesus to death. However, I think the best way for us to really get our bearings in what's going on here, because this is Friday morning. We know that Jesus was crucified uh, just beginning, just a few hours later. They beat him, they put him on the cross that day on Friday. He died Friday night. They put him in the grave Friday night. He was in the grave Saturday, and he rose on Sunday. So we are we're on the day that Jesus was crucified. But I think maybe the best thing that we can do to get a full understanding of what's going on on this particular Friday is to do a, a little flashback. So what I want to do is take us seven days back where uh, Jesus is not in Jerusalem yet. We know that on that Sunday uh, before Jesus died, on that Sunday five days before is when he had that, what they called the triumphal entry. He rode the donkey into town. Well, two days before that, he was on, on that Friday, a week before this particular day, Jesus is in Bethany. So I want to take us back to uh, that particular Friday. And Friday's over here on this side of the stage for some reason. So here he is in Bethany on this particular Friday. And the Passover's coming. And so because the Passover's coming, uh, two miles away from Bethany in Jerusalem, thousands of people are descending upon this particular city of Jerusalem. Thousands of people. Because it's the Passover, a Jewish holiday, where everybody believed if they wanted to be a part of the Passover, they needed to come to Jerusalem. And so this, this city, though it would be small, would be filled with, with thousands of newer people that were there. Well, over in Jerusalem, I'm sorry, over in Bethany, Jesus is there. And as the Passover is coming, as thousands of people are going to be descending upon this particular city uh, in Jerusalem that is in Roman control, and people that were Jewish could not stand. They hated this Roman control and Roman government and Roman oppression here in this particular area uh, and where they were. Well, Jesus over is over in, in, Judea, in Bethany. Um, he hasn't come to Jerusalem yet. Mary, uh, as you see in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6, this is where we get the story where Jesus was in Bethany at uh, the house of Simon the leper. And a woman, we know that's Mary, Mary and Martha. She takes her hair, she anoints Jesus' feet. Um, and Judas is watching this. And he, he thinks to himself, he's complaining in his mind that this money could have been used for the poor, which we know Jesus, Judas just wanted the money. He was uh, hungry for money. And he's thinking to himself, this money couldn't have been used in the poor. Yes, the thousands that would even be descending upon the city of Jerusalem, even at this time, getting ready for the Passover, uh, less than two miles away. So meanwhile, over in Jerusalem, while Jesus is in Bethany a week before on this Friday, that same Friday, that same Friday, Saturday, all kinds of people are descending upon this city, Jerusalem, ready for the Passover. Some were ready to observe the Passover, but some were Jewish people that were very nationalistic, Jewish nationals. And as they're in Jerusalem, they know that many people are going to be coming. They're plotting and they're planning and they're wanting to fight against this oppressive Roman government that's here. They hate being oppressed. And these men that were doing this plotting and planning were trying to oppose Rome in every and by any means possible, even if it meant illegal activity. They didn't care. They hated the oppression that was coming to them. They robbed people, they murdered, and they caused insurrection, which is rebellion or which is a revolution. And they were ready, even one of these particular people was ready to establish himself by force as Israel's king, a new king. They, they haven't had a king in years, hundreds of years. And he's ready to establish himself by force as the king of Israel if he could. These particular plotters and planners, they use guerrilla warfare against the wealthy upper class. And because they did it against the wealthy upper class, 
the, uh, the common folk saw them as popular people. They liked them. Even though they were criminals, the Jewish nationals, even though these guys were criminals, the regular common folk of Jewish people were fine with them doing this because they were in some ways freeing them from this Roman oppression, which they absolutely hated. And so as this is going on, a week, ahead, a week before Jesus is coming into the city, we know at least three of these men were caught by Rome, causing insurrection, rebelling, and trying to do murderous things. We know at least um, three of them were caught by Rome. And Pilate, the governor in charge of this particular area, was very, very happy he had caught these men. One of them was really awful. He, Pilate, hated being the governor of this particular area of Judea. This post that he was given by Caesar could not end fast enough. He, he wanted to do a good job in the eyes of Caesar and be taken away out of this place, Caesar, uh, of this place, Judea, which was very geographically far from the mothership of Rome. Uh, and he wanted to get back and do a very good job. So all he wanted to do was do a good job, keep peace, let Caesar notice him and give him a better job higher up and close to Rome. And that's what Pilate wanted. And so these particular people that are causing insurrection and causing this particular area, that, making it so it could possibly be lost by Roman government. Pilate did not like that. Pilate wanted out of here. He wanted Caesar to think he was doing a good job, not a bad job. So he caught these insurrectionists, and he was very happy that he caught them because he was going to make them an example. He had already told the soldiers, these particular three people are going to die. You can go ahead and set up the three crosses. These men are going to be making an example out of. And the way they're going to be made an example out of is through force. Pilate was, was, was not a nice man at all. Through force, brutality, public crucifying is the way that he chose to keep this region's allegiance to Rome. That's the way he, he chose to keep the Jewish people there, to keep them um, allegiant to Rome. He did, not stand, he did not like them whatsoever. And that was the plan. And fast forward back to this particular Friday where we're going to have uh, Jesus being put before Pilate. The night before that, on Thursday night, Caiaphas, who was in charge of this fake Jewish trial, Caiaphas came up to him uh, likely late Thursday night because he had had this fake farce of a, of a, Roman, of a, Roman, uh, a Jewish trial, came up in some capacity, we don't know how, came up to Pilate and has a conversation with him. And all of a sudden, this plan that Pilate has to put these three people to death is thrown into turmoil. His plans are starting to change because Caiaphas comes to him on Thursday and then comes again to him on Friday to have this trial. Now, as Caiaphas, who is the leader of the Sanhedrin, is bringing Jesus to have this trial in front of Pilate, Caiaphas is thinking this is just going to be some kind of pro forma trial, a formality, a mere formality. He's going to say, yeah, he's guilty. He's going to say, yeah, he deserves death. He's going to put him to death for me. But we're going to see that that's not exactly how it happens. Um, we're going to have kind of a disturbance. Pilate is going to offer up Barabbas to be let go instead of Jesus. And so we're, we're going to see the text here in a second, but it's going to be kind of a little bit different thing than what Caiaphas is going to happen. But with, without uh, going any further, I want to stop and just think about this for a second. Barabbas is going to be, as we know, if you've read the Bible ever, you know this man Barabbas is going to be put up and Jesus is going to be put up and they're going to be given a choice. They have, there's three causes there. We know the two robbers die, and we know that Jesus takes the place. But there are already three crosses prepared. It wasn't like they were just going to crucify two, and then all of a sudden they decided to crucify Jesus. Someone was about to be killed, and likely it was Barabbas. Barabbas was taken out, and Jesus was put up on that third cross instead of Barabbas. So no one can say 
with more pinpoint accuracy, with more literal truthfulness. No one can say, Jesus in my place more than Barabbas. No one historically can say that. Now, hopefully as we're going through this, we're all going to see um, this particular section of Scripture that we're looking at, that every one of us should be able to say if we're in Christ, the same as Barabbas, Jesus in my place. Jesus took my place. So the way I want you to hear this story, as we're, as we're looking at Matthew 27, 11, we're going to go into 26. The way I want you to hear this is, picture you're in Jerusalem, you're there, and it's about 10 or 15 at least years after the, the cross, after the burial, after the resurrection, after Jesus' disciples just started spreading, telling everybody about Christ. 3,000 people are getting saved all over the place, the gospel spreading. It's about 10 or 15 years later, and here stands Barabbas. He's standing there, you walk up to him, he's like, you looking at me? You're like, no, I'm not looking at you. And he's like, all right, let me tell you a story. And you're like, okay, because you're scared. And so you sit down and you just listen to the story. So picture Barabbas is looking at you, and all of a sudden he just starts telling you this amazing story about someone who took his place. And so we're going to have some points I want to point out in the scripture and just hear it from the perspective of Barabbas. But all the while, while you're hearing it from the perspective of Barabbas, I want you to, and this is, I think, the right way to, as, to look at this, I want you to think, okay, Barabbas, you're saying all this to me, but really, really, I can associate myself in there. I can put myself in that exact same story and hear this exact same story as me. So here we are at verse 11. Jesus stands before the governor. We kind of understand all the background of what's going on. Pilate can't stand these particular people. Pilate is ready to kill him. It says in verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor. The governor is Pilate. Pilate hated the Jews. The Jews hated Pilate. Whenever he first got there, the treasury money that whenever Judas came back and said, here's your 30 pieces of silver. I don't want it. Put it back in the treasury. And like, we can't put blood money in the treasury, even though we're the ones that gave you the money. Uh, That money's dirty, even though we're the ones that made it dirty. We're not dirty. That money's dirty. You're dirty. We don't want it. Like Pilate came in and stole all their, all their treasury money and built this like 59 inch uh, or 59 uh, foot mile no, 59-mile bridge and stole it when he did that, when he very first came in. Another thing he did is he put all these big poles, or they're called standards, up and put images of Tiberius all over them, which all the Jews just considered blasphemous. They considered crazy idolatrous, these things all over the place that they're supposed to bow down to and kind of call gods. Another thing he did is there was uh, some demonstrators out there that were kind of rebelling against him. This happened all the time because no one liked Pilate. He put a bunch of people out there in the crowd that were disguised. They were actually soldiers, but they were disguised. And as soon as he gave them the signal, all these people took off their stuff, took out their clubs and daggers, and just started attacking and killing all the people that were there that were demonstrating against him. Another time in a similar type manner, he massacred people and he took the blood of Galileans, which is just wrong, and mixed it in with their sacrifices, which is an abomination uh, according to some of the Old Testament sacrificial practices. And so there was no love lost at all between the governor, Pilate, and the people who were here. They couldn't stand him, which clues us in on why there were people in this particular city rebelling against this oppressive Rome. They hated. They wanted their land back. They wanted to be in charge. They didn't want this particular government here. And so they come to this particular guy, uh, Pilate. They, the Sanhedrin comes. It says, now the, verse 11, now they stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Looking at Jesus, and Jesus said, you have said so. Now, that's kind of a shorthand 
uh, sentence as to what's actually going on. There's, there's a larger, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this last story of Jesus. But John kind of, that's the, Matthew gives us the shorthand version. If you look at John, it's a little bit more expansive. In John 18, verses 29 and 30, we can see just how unprepared the Sanhedrin was. As I said, they thought it was just going to kind of be some little formality trial. But Pilate walks out on that particular morning, uh, and he looks at them, looks at Caiaphas likely, and he says, what accusation do you have against him? They weren't assuming that he was going to say that. They are going to say, oh, this guy's guilty. All right, let's go ahead and kill him. But he comes out ready to have a real, uh, real trial, not some kind of expedient trial. And he looks and he asks the question for a formal hearing. What are the accusations that you have against this man? And then you can see... Uh, the Sanhedrin wasn't quite ready for this. And John 18, 30, they say, if this man weren't evil, we wouldn't have delivered him to you. Like, we can't think of anything, but of course he's bad. That's why we brought him. We, we wouldn't bring non-bad people to you. They don't have a reason. And so they're kind of grasping for straws, trying to think of something. And if you look at Luke 23, 2, it says that they lob up three accusations as fast as they can, trying to make one of these three things stick. The first one is, they say, we found this man misleading our nation. That's a lie. Now, the Sanhedrin, who were supposed to keep... Uh, the law, they're supposed to be like the, the highest religious kind of people, keepers of the law. But here, they are just flat out liars. Anyway, we found this man misleading our nation. Lie, you big liars. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Lie again. And then they throw up this third one, which is true. And they knew that it would um, pique the interest of, of Pilate. They say, and he's also saying that he is Christ, a king. Now they have to throw in that king language. Pilate wouldn't care that he's Christ because Pilate has no interest in Jewish rules, Jewish law, the Messiah. He doesn't care about all that. But king, oh, ruler, he wants to take over this place. I, ta- I rule this place for Caesar. You're saying that he's a king. We're going to have a king take over this place? They're hoping that as they throw out that king line, that that's going to pique the interest of Pilate and cause him to be a little bit nervous. They're trying to get a charge of sedition or rebellion or treason to be um, put against Jesus. And so as they're throwing out this king of the Jew, or king rule, or king law uh, accusation, Matthew shorthands it for us and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus looks at him and says, you have said so. This you have said so, if you've been here with us over the last weeks, should reign familiar. If you remember Matthew 26, 25, Judas looks at Jesus and he says, is it going to be me that's going to come against you? And then Jesus looks at him and says, you have said so. In other words, you said it, not me, but you know it's true. And then just uh, the same chapter, just, uh, I don't know, 30 verse, 40 verses later, in verse 64, the Sanhedrin looks at him and says, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says the exact same thing. You have said so. In other words, you said it, not me, and you know it's true. And then just again, I mean, the exact same phrase. Matthew's really wanting us to tie all those things together and realize Jesus has given the same answer to all of them, and it's true that he is. You said so, Pilate, that I'm the king of the Jews, not me, and you know it's true. What they're hoping, um, the, the Sanhedrin that brought him is that Pilate's going to be nervous about this man calling himself the king and he's going to want to put him to death right away. But what they don't prepare for is Pilate, if you, if you continue reading through this narrative, Pilate doesn't seem to be very threatened by Jesus. Um, he actually doesn't want him to put him to death. He tries to not put him to death. They weren't counting on Pilate saying, well, I, I think that actually he's not a, a bad guy at all. Um, you can see the full answer and John 18 of this Matthew 27, 11, the full answer is in John 18. Jesus says, uh, 
He says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord or did others tell you about me that I'm the king of the Jews? And Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate, so he's saying, yes, I'm a kingdom, but it's not of this world, it's of another world. And so Pilate's just gotta be thinking, what are you talking about? Like somebody said, yes, I'm a king, but I'm not a king of this world. I'm the king of another world. You would be saying, okay, um, what planet are you from? Are you crazy? And so Pilate's hearing this and he's just like, oh, come on, guys. This guy's not, this guy's not dangerous. He's saying he's the king of another world. Like, so, okay, this isn't a big deal. And so Pilate said to him, so you're a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this very purpose, I was born. And for this very purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then famously, Pilate looks at him and says, what's truth? Um, so here, that's kind of shorthanded for us. And it says, are you king of the Jews? And he looks at him and he says, you have said so. Now, remove ourselves from this. Take ourselves 15 years forward. Here we are with Barabbas. He's like, I want to tell you a story. You hear me? I'm going to stick you if you don't sit still. You're like, all right, I'm going to sit still. And so he's looking at you. And all of a sudden, he's looking at you and he's telling you, this man named Jesus took my place. And you're like, okay, what is it? Well, in that particular moment, as Jesus is looking at Pilate and saying, I'm a king, Pilate's like, okay, of another world. Right, I got it. Um, But looking back now, as they've seen everything unfold, they're getting a bigger, greater picture. Oh, this man really was a king. He really was a king. And he wasn't just a king of some, you know, 20, 20 square mile area. Instead, every inch of dirt that humans can walk on on this entire earth He's the king of every square inch. It, there's, not a, there's not a place in this world that he can't say, I'm the king of that, I'm the king of that, and one day he's going to come again and rule and reign over everything. So here stands Barabbas looking at you when he's talking about Jesus in my place, and he looks at you and he says, I want, to know, I want you to know who took my place. A king took my place. That's the first thing as we think about Jesus taking our place. A king took my place royalty. Now, if you've seen any of these famous movies like Braveheart or whatever, we all know when there's some kind of war and there's something going on, everybody protects the king. The king doesn't get out there and go on the front line and take out his swords and start fighting. When they do it in the movies, we always know he's going to live, right? But everybody knows the king is put to be protected. We send the other people out there, but the king kind of stays over here secluded because if we win, then he can come back and he can be in power. The king should always be protected. And Barabbas is like, the exact opposite happened here. The king put himself right out on the forefront, and he took my place. A king. And there's no way that we can hear that without thinking the same thing. Every one of us who are in Christ, and I'm hoping that if you're not in Christ, you come in Christ today, needs to hear. A king, not some podunk, redneck, over 15 square mile king. The king of the universe, the king of the world took your place. A king took a criminal's place. So in this conversation, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you've said so. I didn't say it, you did. And you know it's true. But when he was accused by the chief elders uh, and priests, the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. That's fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah 53. I think it's three or five. He kept his mouth silent. 
Uh, then Pilate said to him, do you hear how many things they're testifying you about? Like Pilate's kind of astonished. Like, don't you want to stand up for yourself? They're saying all these bad things about you. Don't you want to say something? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor, Pilate, is hearing all this. He's greatly amazed. He's just greatly amazed. D.A. Carson says, verse 11, talking about Jesus being a king, is important theologically as well as historically because the king took our place. It stands behind the inscription on the cross and prepares the way for Christianity, which rests on the conviction that Jesus of Nazareth, who rose from the dead as indeed the promised Messiah, is also the king of the Jews. He is the king of the world. And he's the one that took our place. Now here's the problem for the Sanhedrin. This treasonous ploy that they're trying to plant into the mind of Pilate, the Sanhedrin, it's not working. Pilate is sensing that Jesus is innocent and he wants Jesus to stand up for himself. Don't you want to say something? Listen to what they're saying. You seem to be innocent. You seem to be like, okay, I'm listening to you and you're just like, you said so. And as they're lobbing, most people are like, you're wrong and here's why. And Jesus is just like face palming him basically, ignoring him. And Pilate's just like, who is this guy? And so as Pilate's looking at him, now, Jesus is Jewish, and there's no love lost between people that are Jewish. But I think Pilate's kind of looking at Jesus like, wow, this guy's somebody to be admired. He does come as a very popular person. Pilate's no dummy. He understands this region. He knows, he's heard of at least, who this guy Jesus is. Um, We even know that when Pilate sends him over to Herod, which I'm going to talk about in just a second, Herod's like, Jesus is coming. I've heard about this guy. I got a couple questions. And so, like, he's all giddy that Jesus is coming. He just wants to ask him questions. He doesn't really want to ask him questions about how to be saved. He's just like, Jesus, I've heard about this guy. He's pretty popular. Um, And so, anyway, here we are, and Pilate is sensing that he's innocent. Now, I want to take a pause where we are. Uh, And we can see at verse 15, we're going to talk about the traditions of letting one prisoner go. And just jump down with me to verse 19. We're going to look at one particular verse. And here's, let me set the stage for you what's going on. Remember Caiaphas likely came that Thursday night up to, send him a little text. Hey, uh, hey, Pi, called him Pi for short, Pi. Can I run over there? Actually, he would just put the little Pi symbol. That was his little thing. They had emoticons and he sent him this text. Can I come over? I want to come see you and the wife. Got a little discussion I want to talk about. Love to have a trial the next morning. And so he sends him back, sure, smiley face. And so he comes over. Actually, they didn't like each other whatsoever. Um, So Caiaphas comes over and he has this discussion. And here's Pilate and his wife. Pilate's wife, she had a really cool name. Um, Let me make sure I can find it. Her name was Claudia Procola. Um, Claudia Procola is hearing likely this whole conversation that's going on between Caiaphas and and her husband. And she hears about this man, Jesus, they want to bring to, to a trial. He's According to Caiaphas, throwing the whole city into an uproar. He wants to take over. And so uh, Claudia Procola, she goes to bed thinking about Jesus. And while she's sleeping, she has a nightmare. She, she has a vision, a dream, or whatever you want to call it, about this man Jesus. And so she wakes up the next morning. She, she likes to sleep in. Um, and so uh, Pilate's gone. She's like, oh, no, Pilate's gone. I got to tell him about my dream. Urgently, I got to tell him about this dream. So you can see in verse 19. So while Pilate is sitting on the judgment seat in front of Jesus, his wife sends word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. I have suffered much. So she sends this note to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous, righteous, dikaio, righteous, dikaio, innocent, faultless, guiltless, Man, innocent. This is all what it means here, that righteous man. It means innocent, 
faultless, guiltless, righteous man. Have nothing to do with this innocent, faultless, guiltless, righteous man. For I have suffered. This, this suffered means kind of been affected by. It can be positive, like positive being affected by or negative. Likely for her it was, it was negative. We don't know what it was. But she has this nightmare. So a couple things as we're looking at this just to, to bring us into a, a perspective of what's going on. First of all, and this is just a side note. It says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat. I find that first sentence striking. Pilate, a mere man, standing there in judgment of Jesus, who is God. That's, that's astounding, because we know one day the roles will be reversed, and the sentence that Jesus cast down will be much worse than what Pilate could ever do, and that will not be a good day for Pilate. Um, Calvin, as he's thinking about that, says, the Son of God stood as a criminal before a mortal man, and there permitted himself, Jesus, to be accused and condemned so that one day we who are in Christ may one day be able to stand boldly before God in judgment. I mean, that's just an astounding kind of set of circumstances. And so here comes the wife. She sends this, this little word, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Uh, her name's Claudia Prokolot. Pilate's married. That's kind of crazy to think that this guy was married, but he wasn't married to a great girl. She wasn't a catch by any means. She was described throughout history as a person of coarse immorality and decadence. And they said that she was just like her mom. So the whole family's crazy. So have fun with that, Pilate. Um, and anyway, in verse 19, she sends this, uh, this message, have nothing to do with this righteous man. And the stress that, this, that Matthew is wanting us to see here is this, that this particular man, Jesus, is innocent. He's righteous. He's faultless. He's guiltless. The whole point of this particular verse that's being stuck in there is that the writer, Matthew, is trying to highlight for us this one thing, which is this man is innocent. He is faultless. He is guiltless. He is completely righteous. It's also pointing us to a little bit of one other thing. Pilate's apprehensiveness to just give Jesus the death penalty. He as we were hearing that, he's like really apprehensive. And this particular uh, verse clues us in on the apprehensiveness that he's feeling of, of, putting that, of doing this. Because Romans as a whole, not just Pilate and Procola, uh, but Romans as a whole were not just a little bit stitious. They were superstitious, like to the max superstitious. That's just a joke, but no one got it. All right. So uh, anyway, so they were super superstitious. Um, can I say it that way? Super superstitious. And so because of that, he hears this and he's like, okay, you're having a dream. And these dreams mean things. These are omens. And these are considered to be signs that I should follow. And you're telling me, have nothing to do with this, this particular guy, this innocent, righteous guy. So I should listen to that. And so the second thing I want you to see in verse 19 is this, that uh, Jesus is an innocent, righteous man. As Barabbas is looking at you 15 years after this and he's having a conversation, he goes, not only did a king take my place, this king was innocent. He was guiltless. He was faultless. A righteous man took my place. On three separate occasions in this particular uh, story, in Luke 23, Pilate, it's not in Matthew, but Pilate literally says three separate times as he's looking at the people in the crowds, he says three separate times that I have found no guilt of any of the charges that you're bringing. This man is innocent. Three separate times, Luke 23, 4, Luke 23, 14, Luke 23, 22. So as Barabbas is looking at you, he's saying, an innocent man took my place. And obviously, as we hear this, a king of the world took my place that was 
righteous, innocent, faultless, guiltless, took my place. Verse 15, here's kind of the big story. It says, now a feast of the governor was a custom. Now at the feast of the governor, uh, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. This is something that was probably just exclusive to this particular region. Uh, Pilate had set up this little thing because no one liked him. And so he's trying to do small little things to make them bear with him and, and keep some kind of peace. So every year he would release one of their prisoners to them and let them go. And it says, and they, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas was one of these guys that the cross was prepared for. An insurrectionist, a rebel, someone that hated the, the oppressive Roman government, was doing everything he could, even through illegal, murderous activity, to take this back over. And Barabbas was even willing to set himself up as Israel's new king if he could. He was ready to do it by any means possible. Interestingly enough, though, and this is just, nothing is coincidence when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. Barabbas, Bar-Rabbas, his name Bar, son of Rabbi, the teacher, son of the teacher, or son of the father. So if we're associating ourselves into this situation, Barabbas in my place, or Barabbas says Jesus in my place, and we say, this particular man took my place named Jesus. Therefore now I am, because I associate myself with Barabbas, I am now a son or, or daughter of the teacher, of the father. Because Jesus took my place, I am now a son or daughter of the father. I mean, this is not just some coincidence that this man's particular name is Barabbas and that every one of us are Barabbi. Can you pluralize a name? Probably not. Um, and they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, a rebel, an insurrectionist, doing everything he can to get away from this oppressive Rome. In Matthew 27, 38, as Jesus is being crucified, the two people on both sides were called robbers. And in John eighteen forty, Barabbas is called a robber. So they're all three, the crosses are prepared for three robbers. And these robbers aren't just like, you know, I'm going to steal some gum from the gas station. These were murderous robbers. They were violent, violent men ready to take back their, uh, their land. Carson says, Jesus the Messiah actually took the place of the rebel Barabbas because the people preferred the political rebel and nationalist hero to the Son of God. Barabbas was kind of a popular guy. They liked that he was trying to give them back power. And as they're looking at these two men, Barabbas or Jesus... Well, that guy's trying to get us some immediate earthly pleasures and treasures and freedom right now. I want that guy. I don't know what he's trying to do. He's just talking about the kingdoms of this, that aren't even of this world. And so here comes the story. Verse 17, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? This means Messiah, the anointed one, the one who has been spoken of throughout the Old Testament. It's going to be the ones who takes away all the sins of the world. And all these people who were Jewish knew what the word Christ, Messiah, meant. And they said, do you want Barabbas or the Messiah? And they say, for they knew that it was out of envy that he had delivered him. Um, envy because the Sanhedrin was envious of Jesus' popularity. Jesus had so much popularity and they didn't. And they wanted to be able to have the, the popularity of Jesus, so they're envious of it. And then we had that little verse 19 that kind of stuck in there about the dream. And it says, verse 20, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd. So they already had 
put themselves out there and they're whispering in ears. Hey, when they say Barabbas or Jesus, say we want Barabbas. So they're whispering to all the crowd and here it comes. Now he's saying, which one do you want? The chief priests and elders, those are the people of the Sanhedrin, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said again to him because he didn't want to do it. Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? And they don't have an answer to what evil has he done. So when you don't have an answer, you don't answer. You just yell what you're already yelling even louder. And it says, what evil has he done? But they just shouted all the more. Let him be crucified. But what has he done? Let him be crucified. Now, in this particular section, we see Pilate doing everything he can to try to absolve Jesus. Now, all we have is Barabbas in this one little narrative. But if you look at all of them, in Luke 23, in this particular time, Luke actually uh, records that Pilate sent him over to Herod. Herod did some stuff and didn't find anything and sent him back to Pilate. That was one way. He's just trying to get rid of the responsibility of being the one that puts Jesus to death. He also just says at one point in Luke 23, how about I just punish him really bad and then I'll let him go? And they're like, no, we don't want that. We don't want you to send him over to Herod. They did. They sent him back. We don't want you to just punish him real bad. And then... Another thing that uh, Pilate tried to do is he said, well, how about I put Barabbas in him in, up in front of you? And then you can pick. And then they pick Barabbas. That's the one that Matthew records, which is no incident. Matthew was writing to people who were Jewish, and they all knew who Barabbas was. Barabbas wasn't some nobody. They knew who he was, and he, know, he understands why they would all pick. The other thing that Pilate did is he said, I'll just, I'm just going to do this. Uh, instead, I'm going to offer to beat him up, then let him go. You're not going to do that. Instead, at the very end, he just goes out and he beats Jesus to a bloody pulp anyway and then puts him out there in front of all people, just beat to death, literal death. And he's hoping that as the people look at this man, that when they look at him, as it says in Isaiah, he doesn't even look the same anymore. He doesn't look like the same person anymore. And he's just hoping that pity will, will cause the hearts of people to say, we pity him now, let him go. He tried all four of those things, and none of it worked. Even as they looked at him, they're like, nope, crucify him even more. So we see Pilate trying to say, let me do something for you. Let me, let me absolve Jesus in some way. But in this text, it's Barabbas. He wants to put a criminal up and say, do you want the criminal to be set free or this innocent man? And they all yell, we want the criminal to be set free. So the third thing is this. Jesus in my place says, a criminal was spared death in the place of Jesus. The person that's being set free, or the person that's not being set free, is going to be put to death. Fifteen years later, we're talking to Barabbas, and he's looking at you, and he says, I was a criminal. There's no question about my guilt. I just got through telling you this guy was innocent. And they chose me to go free, and they chose him to be put to death. They didn't just say, put him back in jail. They didn't say, beat him a little bit and then stick him in jail. Instead, they said, put him to death. So as we're looking at this, I mean, the only way that we can look at this is say, I'm a criminal because I have willingly broken the laws of God. Willingly. And because I'm a criminal, I deserve death. And Jesus in my place means I don't have to have death. I can... By faith, believe in what Christ has done, and I never have to receive any kind of death. Instead, Jesus took the death that I deserved for me, and now I am escaping death forever. Amazing. We shouldn't miss all the spiritual overtones that are, sh- that are being put here. 
But as they chose the rebel Barabbas, the political rebel instead of the nationalistic hero, and the nationalistic hero instead of the son of God, what we're hearing is this. The people wanted an earthly king that offered earthly advantages in that immediate time period rather than preferring the king of heaven who offers truth and righteousness and eternal salvation. And the truth is, if we don't watch our hearts, we're the exact same way. We sinners, when we are not following Christ, will prefer self-serving idols over the truth-telling Savior every single time. We want earthly comforts and advantages over the King of Heaven. Now, I'm not saying renounce any comforts or advantages that you might have. I renounce my education. It's an advantage. I'm not saying that, right? (laughs) I'm not saying, like, give your house away and go live on the street. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying, whenever advantages come our way, we lunge into those and we make those idols more important than Christ and we hold on to them and we say, I need this over Jesus. And Jesus might be knocking on the door saying, that advantage that you cling to so closely, it's become on the throne of your heart and you've taken Jesus off. And that's what's going on here. They prefer Barabbas over the king of heaven. Verse 24. um, Actually, I want to show you one other thing in verse 22. I know we kind of talked about this and we we went through it, but um, there's a contrast I want us to see that's quite astounding. In verse uh, chapter 21, verse 9, just five days ago, Jesus is entering into the city. And as he's entering into the city, riding on a donkey, and they're throwing down the palm branches, and uh, Matthew 21, 9, these exact same people are shouting at the top of their lungs, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Praise to God, is what they're yelling. And just five days later, with seemingly nothing else changing, Besides just the Sanhedrin whispering in their ear, all of a sudden, in this particular moment, instead of yelling, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, in very stark contrast, they're yelling, let him be crucified, even louder. Let him be crucified. And Pilate's looking at him and he says, what am I supposed to do with this man Jesus who is called the Christ? And this word Christ, as I said, is no mistaken word to these people that are Jewish. They knew who Christ was. They understood even all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall happened. In Genesis chapter 3, there's something called the Proto-Evangelium, the very first gospel, the very first time in, in Jewish history where they understood God makes a promise that through the seed of the woman, a Savior is coming and that through the seed, that man that's coming, that particular person is going to crush the serpent, the one that just made every man fall. And throughout the entire Old Testament, over and over, there's prophecies of someone that's going to come and no longer we have to make animal sacrifices. There's going to be a supreme sacrifice once and for all. All the waning that you wanted for a king, you're going to finally have a king. Over and over, as we've read the book of Matthew, he points back to Isaiah, he points back to Jeremiah, he points back to all the Old Testament prophecies. That man, this Savior, this Messiah, this anointed one, he's going to come one day. And then Matthew's over and over saying, Jesus just fulfilled that prophecy. This Messiah, this man Jesus, just fulfilled it again. This man Jesus, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And 
Barabbas is Jewish. He knew his Old Testament. He was nationalistic. He was probably not a lover of God, but he was a Jew. And he knew all these things. The fourth thing I want you to see is, not only did the king take my place, some guy that oversees a land, but the Messiah, the promised one from all eternity past Old Testament, took my place. So here's Barabbas, a Jewish man, looking back. And I don't know if Barabbas is saved or not. You know, 15 years later, we're all speculating. But we're hearing it for the point of the sermon. He's saying, someone that was a king took my place. Someone that was innocent took my place. He took my death in my place. But he was also the Messiah. The promised one of Israel. The one that's been told all throughout the Old Testament scriptures that is going to be the one that's going to set us free and give us a heart of flesh and take out the heart of stone. The Messiah took my place. The Christ. Which means for us, the Messiah has taken our place. Someone has gone before us and sacrificed himself and we don't have to. Now, the worst thing starts happening. You can just hear the, the roars. All the people are screaming, crucify him, we want him to be crucified. And all that Pilate wants is to get out of this particular place. He can't stand it. Pax Romana, Roman peace, is not happening in before his eyes. People are starting to riot. It says in the 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he's like, oh, junk, this isn't good. I'm here trying to keep peace Caesar is going to mess me up if this happens. Pilate may have feared Jesus a little bit as he saw this man just stand there and not try to uh, save himself. Pilate might have feared the Sanhedrin a little bit, though he didn't like him, because they seemed to have some power. He might have feared the people too as they're rioting. But the fact that they were rioting, word was going to get back to Caesar that he couldn't keep control. And he feared all those people, but somebody he feared more than anybody was Caesar. He feared Caesar. And so the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, for Pilate, and listening to his wife's advice, have nothing to do with that evil man. By the way, it's not necessarily good advice, right? <laughs> like, have no, I'm sorry, have nothing to do with that righteous man. She called him righteous, but she also says, have nothing to do with him. That's not good advice. If anybody tells you, don't mess with Jesus, have nothing to do with that Jesus guy. <laughs> That's really bad advice. Actually, she sort of said, have everything to do with that Jesus guy. He's innocent. Listen to what he has to say. Believe and trust in him. But that's, she gives bad advice. That's why she's a woman of decadence. So anyway, um, so he's, he's listening to this advice. have nothing to do. But all of a sudden, the straw that broke the camel's back is a riot's happening. And they're saying, they're saying to him, basically, the, it, the uh, Sanhedrin is saying, we're going to send word back to uh, Caesar and let him know that you are going to die. We're going to tell him that, and it says in John 19, 12, if you release this man, Jesus, then you're not Caesar's friend. And everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And Jesus is making himself a king, and he's opposing Caesar. And if you don't release Barabbas, we're going to let Caesar know that you're trying to set up a new king here. And he knew that means decapitation soon. So he's like, okay, I got to do something. So ceremonially, he looks at this riot happening, and he's like, all right, all right, all right, fine. But you should know I'm not responsible. I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you Barabbas, and I'm going to do this for, Je- for, uh, do this for Jesus, but I'm not going to give you what you want all the way because I'm not going to say this. It's because of me. Look what he says in verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All right, there's, a bu- there's a bunch of stuff in that. Um, 
First of all, the washing of hands in front of them. This was not actually a Roman custom. Instead, this was a Jewish custom. And so Pilate is trying to show the contempt that he has for the people by doing one of their rituals, which is shown to us in Psalm 26 or Deuteronomy 21, by washing his hands and saying, my hands are washed of this. This is all on your, your hands. Um, this, you're the ones that are doing this. I am innocent of this man's blood. Uh, Spurgeon, I think it is, as he's looking at uh, Pilate trying to say, I'm innocent. He says, there isn't enough water in the world to wash off your guilt, Pilate. You need something much stronger than water to wash off Jesus's blood off your hands. And as I'm hearing that, I'm just saying, the irony of all ironies is this. The only thing that can wash him and make him innocent is the exact same thing that's on his hands. The blood of Jesus is on his hands, and that's the only thing that can actually wash him and make him innocent is the blood of Jesus. And crazy ironies. Um, And then he looks at him and he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And he says, interestingly enough, see to it yourselves. See to it yourselves. Which if you look at uh, 27.4, that's the exact same response that the Sanhedrin gave to Judas. He's like, this man's innocent. Here's back your money. And said, that's not responsibility for us. See to it yourself, Judas. You take care of it. And Matthew employs that exact same little phrase, see to it to yourselves, because Matthew is wanting us to see, he's wanting us to understand that in the same way that the Sanhedrin was guilty as the same as Judas, so as in this particular place, Pilate is guilty just like the chief priests and elders for inciting the crowd. The Sanhedrin couldn't pass off the guilt to Judas. Pilate couldn't pass off the guilt to Sanhedrin. They were all guilty. And so are we. We're all guilty. We, we can't just say, see to it yourselves. None of us can pass off the guilt for sin. Matthew's wanting us to see this. We're all guilty. Every single one of us. You can't pass off the guilt. Instead, in the irony of all ironies, the blood of Jesus is even on us because we've willingly chosen to sin. It's the only thing that can save us. If we say, you died the death that I should have died, therefore, I trust and I believe that you took my penalty I confess my sin. I repent of my sin. Now we have been, quote unquote, washed. In other words, forgiven of all sin. All of our sins are forgiven. And now all we know is life eternal with God forever. So he says, see to it to yourselves. And all the people answered astonishingly, his blood be on us and our children. They said, fine, we'll take the blame. We want him to be put to death. This is mob psychology ruling here. They just don't even know what they're saying anymore. And then it says, he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. Jesus was not spared death, but Barabbas was. But here's the interesting thing. As Barabbas was spared death and Jesus wasn't, they didn't take Barabbas and say, okay, you don't have to die, but you do go have to be in prison the rest of your life. That's not what happens. And that's not the gospel. We don't just escape death and then go to prison. Instead, it says in this text, then he released Barabbas to them. You're free. As if nothing has ever happened, I'm going to fully take your place. The fifth thing that we need to know about Jesus in my place is a criminal, me, was released and set free in the place of Jesus. So as Barabbas is looking at you, he's like, I wasn't put back in jail. 
He didn't just take my death. I actually got to go free. Galatians 5.1. It's for freedom that we've been set free. The law came and said, you're guilty. You have to follow me if you want eternal life. But we can't follow the law. And if we trust in Christ, he takes our death. We're then set free from the law of sin and death. And now we are now released to go live a life for Christ. Released and free now to honor God with our lives. We don't have to be slaves to sin because now the Bible says we're slaves to righteousness. We can live right, upright, just-filled, whole, guilt-free lives, innocent lives by the power of the Spirit because of Jesus in our life. We are now free, just like Barabbas. And it says that Jesus was instead scourged. That's not a familiar word with us. We don't, you probably don't ever use scourged unless you're just really mad at your kids. I'm going to scourge you right now if you don't you know, fill in the blank. Um, I wouldn't do that, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but scourged means this. It's a severe flogging and beating. Now, the Jewish tradition, they had the beating with rods. You know, they would, they would beat you 40 times, uh, 39 times. But the Romans, who were much more violent, they had the scourging. And this is where they would tie a man to a post, and two men would take whips, and they, had, they were multi-lashed. It was a whip containing bone and metal and all kinds of sharp objects, and they would whip, and it would stick into their skin, and then they would pull it. And it was designed to rip the skin and rip the tissue off and literally expose bone. And it even says that the people's bowels and intestines would start literally hanging out from them. The Romans knew how to violently kill people. And sometimes people didn't even survive the scourging. But they would beat them up severely before they put them on the cross so that they wouldn't live on the cross very long. And they whipped Jesus intentionally. It says they, the Romans scourged Jesus to the point of death intentionally so that then when they put him on the cross, he wouldn't live very long. Which we all understand why whenever they make Jesus carry his cross, he literally can't. He literally has that physically been beaten. He can't even carry his own cross up the hill. And they tell Simon to carry it. Jesus took our scourging and gave us healing. This is how the Bible talks. It says that in Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Transgressions, iniquities, it's just sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed first peter 2 24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live now to righteousness by his wounds we have been healed so literally jesus jesus's scourging gives us our healing and barabbas is released and no doubt sees this happening firsthand. No person can say with any more pinpoint accuracy or resolve truthfulness, that should be me. That can't not move his heart. I can't imagine a person that's watching all this. That cross was my cross. That scourging was my scourging. I think that as we look at the Bible, um, 
we like to, and I think this is a healthy practice. As we look at the Bible, we like to associate ourselves with characters in the Bible. I think that the, the characters in the Bible are put there for us to associate. Like, hey, there's Peter. He's got a big mouth. He talks all the time. I've got a big mouth. I say things I shouldn't all the time. So I'm going to read about Peter and see how he just throws stuff out there and how Jesus tells him he's, you know, the devil or whatever. And, but Jesus has a triumphant comeback. And yes, God, I love you. And hey, I'm Peter. I, I, I identify with that. Or Paul. Paul's not a big mouth. He's just... Um, very methodical and type A and go get them, but also like writes these awesome, long, philosophical, methodical letters. And so I, I, I'm a thinker. I'm like Paul. I like to do that. Or maybe you're like Mary. You're like, ah, stuff, order, whatever. I don't care about that. It's just I like to sit at the feet of Jesus and just be with him and enjoy him and spend money on him and, and get my ornaments and rub it on it. Like, I am willing to give high costs of worship to be able to follow him. Or maybe you're like her sister Martha, which is like neat in order. I got to get everything under control first, and then I can start following Jesus. And like we see all these particular people in the Bible, and there's scores more. I don't want to use David because, you know, that's messed up. But anyway, uh, so we've got all these characters in, in the Bible that we can kind of identify with. And I think that's a good practice. But I think above all of them, above all of them, first and foremost, every single one of us should say, I first and foremost identify with Barabbas, the criminal. A king took my place. The Messiah that was innocent. He died instead of me. And not only that, I was released. If there's anybody in the Bible that I should identify with, it's this king. Because I'm a criminal deserving death. None of us should ever get over that truth. I'm a criminal deserving death. I have willingly broken God's laws and a king took my place. He's released me to be free now. None of us should ever get over this. Paul, he's kind of talking about this in, in, in a way. He says in Romans chapter 7, Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. We've died to the law so that we may belong, be possessed by another, namely Jesus, to him that has been raised from the dead. That's how we know it's Jesus. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Now that we belong, we live a life that bears fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, while we were still Barabbas, we... Um, lived according to our sinful passions. We were aroused by the law. We were at work in our, in our members to bear fruit for death. Every action we did with our hands and our minds and our thoughts and everything we did was to serve our own passions, but that brought us death. That's what happened before that. But now, when we're in Christ, but now we have been, here it is, released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We're no longer captive of that, so that now we serve in the new way of the Spirit. We are filled with the Spirit and we live life by the Holy Spirit, not in the old way of the written code, but now filled with the Spirit. That's the life that we have now in Christ. Every single one of us are Barabbas. But we're redeemed Barabbas. We are literally bar rabbi, sons and daughters of the Father. Who are in Christ. That's pretty amazing. So if you're not 
a believer. If you're hearing all this for the first time and you're saying, I hear what you're saying. I am a criminal spiritually. I have willingly broken God's laws. I'm just saying, then believe in Christ today. Repent of your sin, confess, and become a believer. Identify yourself with Barabbas and now be a son or daughter of the king. But if you are a believer and you're hearing this, let's just say with everything in us, I I don't want to ever get over this. I want to trust in him today. And now I want to live a life that shows I am a bar rabbi, a son of the father, a daughter of the father. I want my whole life to be expressed as a father or a son of daughter of this, of this king. Every action, every thought, every good work, every conversation, everything I can do, every plan I make is for the worship and glory of Jesus. The people I reach, the people I talk to, the people I help, I want it all to be for God's glory. I think that's what being a son of the teacher, a son of the father means. And so here at Remedy, we have a little bit more time after the sermon. It's not just a half a song and then we go grab our sandwich. Instead, it's it's three to four songs. And that's not a whole lot of time. But if we've, like, if this is the Bible, if this isn't just some random book that you read for fun, but this is literally God has superintended this. He spoke through the Holy Spirit as men wrote. And so when we read it, it's literally God speaking to us. If God is speaking to us, then we can't just hear this and say, okay, that sounds good. Uh, cheeseburger, what are you feeling like? Like that's, none of us should do that. Instead, if we've heard from God, I think it just means we need to take a little bit of time to think, take a little, little time to process, reflect. We, we live in this fast-paced, fast-food culture where as soon as I'm done with that app, I'm opening up the next one. And what's my 140-character tweet saying? Like, everything's so fast. And God's saying, listen to me. I wrote a big book. I, I talked to you. And I want you to stop and reflect and consider what it means to be a son or daughter of the Father. And so in this time, I don't want you to just fly out of here or whatever, but maybe during these three or four songs, you just need to sit and read and pray and ask the Spirit to teach you. Maybe you need to become a believer. Come and find me and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a believer. But however God is leading you right now, just be obedient. And then at the end, we'll be dismissed. Let me pray. God, thank you for this time. I pray that you would be with my friends here as they think and pray and consider what you've done for them and that they would give you all the glory, all the honor. That as they reflect on the fact that we're all Barabbas, criminals that deserve death, but you took our place, that it would be radically life-changing. They would put their faith in you and follow you this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.